Hello, and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about both 1917 and Ford vs. Ferrari. I'm happy to be joined by both Fred Cobb. Fred, how's it going? It's going well, although I will admit, and I told you this already, I'm slightly intimidated to do this with Elijah because <laughs> it is obviously a movie very much defined by its technical aspects, and he's way more qualified to talk about that than yeah, I well, am. Yep. So. Fr- Fred did that my job for me and just introduced our other guest, Elijah Howard. Elijah, thanks for being here. Of course, happy to be here. And I will also, I will, I will piggyback on that and say that while I'm certainly happy to talk about the technical aspects, I think something that hopefully we get to is the fact that there is so much more to this film than just the technical aspects. And I think uh, those things will be something that we can all really uh, appreciate and enjoy. Yeah, we can appreciate and enjoy everything. But yeah, Elijah's more of a filmmaker by trade than either of us, so he can speak to a lot of the Roger Deakins of it all, which we're going to do. But you know, I think Fred just knows history like way better than me, so I, I really don't know shit about World War One, guys. I'm, it's like kind of a historical blind spot for me, and I I just don't know very much. So I'm probably going to be uh, I'm, I'm probably I'm, I'm very happy to have both of you here because I think Elijah is a, a a bit of a historian himself, and certain and much more so than I am. So I'm glad to have both of you here to talk about this. Uh, 1917 is the newest movie from Sam Mendes, who he also wrote it. It was inspired by stories his grandfather, a World War One veteran, uh, told him about his time in the war fighting for the British Army, and it follows uh, it follows just just two characters though really. Uh, are just young British soldiers uh, fighting in the war, and they get sent on a bit of a mission, which is part of the ingenuity of this film, I think, is that there's not like a whole lot of intricate plot to follow. You know, it's a it's a rather simple story of two guys that have to get from point A to point B and have to just encounter a lot of obstacles along the way. And the kind of the impetus that starts them off and is the starting point for this movie is that one of them, who is Lance Corporal Blake, played by Dean Charles Chapman, who you might otherwise know as Tommen from Game of Thrones, he is he learns that uh, his brother is in a battalion or what would be the proper group for term for a group of soldiers? Or oh, oh, they have a name in the movie. They're the Devons. Uh, Second Devons. Yeah, so they're a group that's about to go into battle, and uh, Colin Firth plays a commander that says, you know, like, look, we're gonna. Uh, we think the Germans are kind of luring us into a trap here, and uh, we, they think they're good to attack based on a lot of retreating that's been going on, and that's not really the case. You guys need to make it the six mile trip or six hour trip away to go warn them that hey, you guys can't be running into battle like this it's it's a trap it's a trap it's a trap and so he and with the help of lance corporal Schofield, played by george mckay uh embark upon this mission to go and warn their comrades and uh, part of the obviously a lot of what has gotten talked about with this film is the fact that roger deacon shot it and it is visually one of the most unique films that most people that it will be seeing it have ever seen and that it's uh a, a sh- movie that largely takes place as a as a one long or not one long tracking shot or a oneer, but it's it's composed of several long tracking shots, and uh, it doesn't really try and hide that, which is I think pretty good because you don't spend this whole movie like trying to find the find where the cuts are. It doesn't really hide the fact that it's not one long take, but I think. Uh, the craft, which is something that we're going to talk about a lot, is a thing that's been t- gotten talked about a lot with this movie. And Elijah, I want to start on you because we talked about The Lighthouse earlier this year. And I mean, you that's one of your favorite movies of the year. And I really respected it and liked parts of it and was more just impressed with the fact that it existed. Like a movie with this craft, with this, that looks like this, that 
sounds like this with these the way these guys talk and has all these little details can can exist and be so unique in its craft and still get made despite how bizarre it truly is and even if i didn't love the film overall as much as you and here in certain ways it's kind of incredible that a film like this also exists but you kind of hinted at it when we first started out and because it was what was i planned on having my first question be to you is that uh does this movie work for you as more just an exercise in incredible craft and if so why is that yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that I would go so far as to say that it works more in that regard. That is certainly, for me, that's the door in. I didn't mean, I didn't mean um, is the other stuff better than the craft. I just meant, like, oh. does, does it work for you as more than simply just a exercising great craftsmanship is probably how I should have phrased that. Yeah, I'd say so. I think that, um, you know, the craft serves to enhance uh, a lot of... The, the emotion and the the way that the story plays out, uh, and that's that's an important thing to I know I know that that sounds kind of like you know rote like okay well isn't that what it's supposed to do but I think a lot of the time when you look at movies that are technical achievements uh, there is a disconnect I, I do think that's a common problem I think it is a very common problem that movies that are extremely technically proficient and and uh, innovative uh, tend to sometimes get lost in the sauce in that yeah. and uh, end up just being that and they don't really uh, you know go go for much more than that so I think um, when you can have that level of genius in the craft and still have it work entirely in service of the narrative in service of what the movie is trying to do. Uh, that's, that's, that's a treat that, that, that should be the baseline, but it does end up being a treat because that doesn't happen that often. True. Fred, what was your, uh, what was your, uh, biggest takeaway from 1917? Cause I know you like the movie. What, what worked for, what worked about it for you so much? I think what I thought was incredibly fascinating is that even though the technical aspects do get highlighted a lot, it wasn't really, all that flashy about it. I think it really sort of stuck to the point that this is a story about two guys going on a mission together, which is the kind of thing that would have happened all the time in World War One. What we really have to keep in mind here is that we stick with them for just two hours, and the war went on for four years. <laughs> and they started digging trenches very quickly. As soon as they realized that there wasn't a lot of ground to gain, and any time they got a little bit of it back, um, the Germans would basically drive them right back into that trench. Hmm. Um, there really wasn't a lot of ground that was being gained. So we get to experience this for just a very small fraction of how long the war went on. And this gave us a very good idea, I think, of just the kind of daily terror that um, young men uh, were subjected to for all this time. I mean, these two guys were younger than I am now. And I spent two hours just watching YouTube videos in a row. And these two basically make it across half of France trying to survive. And it's just, I think, a very humbling uh, reminder of what humanity was doing just a century ago and people our age were being asked to do for their country. Yeah, and I like what you said about it not being like super flashy because I think part of the what impressed me so much about this movie was that I, I was very engaged and I found it very intense and very gripping without there being a lot of quote-unquote battle scenes you know i when i heard that it was going to be just a uh, largely a oneer i mean i didn't i didn't really watch the trailer i didn't watch see a lot going in so i apparently if you watch the trailer there is a lot of different locations in it and i really didn't even notice that i think i might have seen a commercial here or there of the really impressive 
most memorable shot of the movie of Schofield just running as he tries to get from one end of the bunker to the other at the end. And I'd seen that, but I really didn't have any other image of this movie in my head going in. So in my, I was like, oh, they're going to do it as a one or as like a two hour battle scene. That was literally what I thought this movie was going to be before I went into it. So I had a very different idea of what it was going to be before I went in. And I, I really did find myself really taken by it for so much of it without there being a lot of flashy uh, hand-to-hand combat or gun gunfighting or anything like that that was like the kind of thing I thought we were about to get and I and I, I and I and I and I guess the other part of that is also that I was pretty taken with the craft and I and I guess it maybe kind of is pretty showy to like do what they did where you're it feels like you're covering four different landscapes before they even do one of those breaks where it's like oh well that's where the shot kind of ends and maybe there's other tricks that I didn't even realize that they were doing to cut cut a take and where, where it didn't seem like there was one but that were in like four different outdoor sets without a seemingly obvious place to have cut. That was just like super impressive to me. I'm like, in certain ways, tracking shots and one oneers have become overdone in the last like six years. In my mind, ever since True Detective first did their really famous one. And maybe some people just do it just to do it, just to show that they can do it. So I'm always impressed when one of them like shows it shows me a different kind of oneer. And I thought that like just the idea of going to like so many different kinds of outdoor sets within the course of one, I just thought that was okay. Well, here's a really unique way you're doing it. But I guess my my next question then would be. That was what impressed me about it. But uh, um, Elijah, does doing it in a, in that way is it necessary to do it as a one or does it uh, go hand in hand and help tell this story in a way that you thought, all right, it, it, it kind of earned it and it made sense and they justified doing it in this manner. Yeah, um, and and one movie that I keep coming back to because you know I love to make comparisons when I'm on your podcast. Yeah. One movie that I keep coming back to is Saving Private Ryan. Um, And it's a movie that I I very much like, and I'm certainly not here to disparage Saving Private Ryan. But what I really liked about the the one-take aesthetic, shall we say, in service of this film, is that when you compare it to Saving Private Ryan, which is also supposed to be a war memory, it's a guy basically remembering his time in combat and the story that led to him standing in that place at that cemetery Mm -hmm. uh, at the beginning of the movie, it doesn't feel quite as authentic that feels like a forced framing device when you compare it to this movie where the idea is really just we are living somebody's memory of a day and of a day in war and that one take i think helps to fit this this feeling of subjectivity uh you know versus objectivity that we are we're watching everything unfold from from these from this character's memory and he's telling it it's it's it is occurring in the stream of consciousness where it's literally just the entire day's events playing out in a row. And um, to me, that felt so authentic and realistic. And so when Sam Mendez accepted that Golden Globe and said, this is for, you know, this is for Alfred Mendez uh, for the stories that he told me, it felt real. It felt honest to me that there that that was actually the point that it was a memory being recounted and so i liked that quite a bit uh there was it, it helped to you know amp up that realism yeah fred, fred you back off of that for yeah yeah, yeah please do i was gonna ask you to yeah so uh, what i also found really fascinating about that particular way of telling the story is that you never see these guys taking a break because we're not allowed to either we follow them the entire way. And it kind of reinforces the idea that they don't have time to sit down under a tree for a couple of minutes to take a breather and to rest, because there's a lot of urgency to this mission, obviously. 
And uh, the other thing that really plays into that is you said that you appreciated that it wasn't a two-hour battle scene, but that it had a few quiet moments where they had a chance to discuss and converse about the different perspectives on what heroism in war means and whether they think getting a medal is something that's uh, something that'll make them uh, look great with their families after the war. Those scenes where they, they do actually find themselves getting shot at or grenades are flying, it makes those scenes a lot more suspenseful because you know that they're not afraid to show you the quiet moments. Mm-hmm. So you never know when exactly they're going to come across a tripwire or a sharpshooter is going to take a shot at them. Uh, so those moments landed a lot harder than they might have otherwise. Yeah, no, for, for sure. And I guess... I, I, I like what you said about the, sl- the the moments where they do slow down and they do talk, but I think what's also impressive is that I don't feel like the camera ever stops moving, even in those moments. Like, I can't really think of a moment in this movie where even if the action slows down, where, like, the camera is still not moving. Like, I mean, it, I guess it still counts as a wonder if you're not cutting and it's just sitting still on someone for a while, but... We could talk a little bit about the little interlude with the, the French woman and the baby, but, like, even in that scene where it's, like, you're just in one spot, like, it's constantly going back and forth to her tending to that baby and then back to him and then her pushing that baby in a drawer. And, like, it, it, there, might give, there might be moments where the characters can kind of breathe a little bit more, but I don't really think it, either, it, it, really, it doesn't really let you kind of take a breath at all throughout almost the entire movie aside from when he, when he gets one of his five concussions. And, uh, and, and we have to – um, and I'm, I'm talking, though, of when, when he gets shot in the head, and we can also talk about what, what, what even happened there because there's been a little confusion. But, I mean, that's like the one moment where it's like, all right, well, it's going to fade to black for like three seconds, and we can catch our breath, and then we got to keep going. And I – it's 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 a way to like make you. It's a unique way of like making you like feel like you've just been through the ringer and you've just had this super propulsive experience without it being like constant combat, which I is I feel like is kind of unique for a war movie. Yeah, I mean, I I would say that something that maybe we take for granted in today's day and age mm-hmm. uh, when we watch movies is how much motion is implied by editing. You know, we don't have to move the camera that much. We don't have to move characters that much if we just do you know, shot, reverse shot, shot, reverse shot, tighter shot, tighter reverse shot. You know, we just keep cutting back and forth. That Those cuts imply motion. And because of that, we feel more engaged when we watch something, even if it's just as mundane as a conversation. Um, and I felt that this film, like you said, the camera never stops moving. And I think that that uh, you know, you could look at that at base level as just being compensation for the fact that there's no editing, but that takes a great deal of directorial vision and cinemat and you know cin- cinematography working in tandem with that to make that work. And I think for me, one of my favorite examples was something, uh, some something somewhat mo- mundane, which uh, is when uh, Blake and Schofield are brought in to speak to Colin Firth, uh, to speak to the general and receive the mission at the beginning of the film. They walk down into that bunker and the camera's behind them the whole time and they come to the table and the camera's still behind them and Colin Firth is sitting on the other side of the table and he gets up and he turns towards the camera and for that exchange, right, all we see is Colin Firth. Uh, You know, he's, he's laying out what's going on and we're sitting there and even if it's subconsciously, we want to know what is going on in Blake and Schofield's head, right? There, mm-hmm. we're like, you know, you you want that reverse shot because in a normal film, they would show Colin Firth, he'd say something, he'd say something, then it would cut to another camera where you would see Blake and Schofield. And you you were kind of denied that. And then there is a very clever directorial moment 
where once we're once we have all this tension built up and we want to know what they're thinking, Sam Mendez knows that, and he has Colin Firth say, "Hey, come look at this map," and then mm-hmm. they walk around the table to the other side of the table, so they so that they are facing the camera and Colin Firth's back is turned to the camera, and that is finally when we get the reverse shot and we can finally see their reaction. And the film is filled with little things like that, where it's just these little things where we're denied something that we expect because of the way that editing works in movies today. Well, sorry, can I, can I want to ask, I was going to ask you a question specifically sure. about the editing of the movie. Uh, you yeah. know, uh, oftentimes, uh, like a best editing Oscar nomination is kind of like a harbinger for a best picture nomination, or that's something that a lot of people think you need, unless it's something like people said, like Birdman, where they, they just, people might not have gotten how that movie was edited because it all does look like one take. 1917 also didn't get a Best Editing nomination. I was listening to a podcast about it earlier where they said they were – one of the people on it said, yeah, because every every shot is like – because it's shot in this style, every, even if there is editing when people doesn't think there's editing because it's – when people think there is no editing because of the lack of cuts – it's more that it doesn't really deserve an Oscar for editing because, you know, every shot is already mapped out because the director has already planned the movie that way. Do you think that's an unfair way to characterize it? Or is there a lot more to go that goes out into editing a movie like this? No, I think that's a, that's a totally valid way to characterize it. I, and I think that's why I've said this before, I, I think to you, but not on your podcast, which is that for the most part, you know, the reason why the best, you know, the best picture getting a best editing nomination mm-hmm. uh, and sometimes even a best editing win is really at the end of the day, it's because editors think that good movies are edited well, typically. That's just the way I'm, as an editor, that's the way most editors think. Mm-hmm. Most editors are kind of are kind of self-absorbed that way, where it's, you know, most, most academy branches are going to think that way. But I think it's doubly true with editors where, you know, editors think that if a movie's good, it was edited well, even if it wasn't. Like Bohemian Rhapsody, for example, which actually won the Best Editing Oscar. And they just, they, I mean, they just turned that into a whole social thing. But that was... To me, that was a perfect example of a movie not really deserving that award or not even deserving to be nominated, but it was because editors had to justify their liking the movie. And and for a movie like this, it's different because editors are going to watch this movie and know how little editing really went into it. And I, I mean, that characterization that there isn't really a lot of editing because the director is the one who's doing the editing, basically, uh, by, by directing the scene, that's true. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, is, it was Lee Smith's job, basically, to find the best points to hide the edits in, which there was maybe like 25 of them in the whole movie. Right, and I guess th- that was the, actually the next thing I was going to ask you guys was uh, this movie is edited by Lee Smith, who won the, the Oscar for Best Editing for Dunkirk a couple years back, and I feel like Dunkirk is uh, it's pretty obvious just how intricately edited that movie is with all the different timelines that it's weaving together. It was also our last uh, pretty big war film that got as far as something that got this kind of awards attention and box office attention and all that. Uh, Fred was I have a little bit to say about how I compare those two these two movies and why I think this one works better for me than Dunkirk did. Uh, I don't know, Fred. Were you a big Dunkirk fan? Did you did you even think about that at all as you were watching this movie and as far as what it did, wh- wh- how it executed its vision? I thought Dunkirk was fine. I think my problems with the, that movie specifically were more related to the fact that Christopher Nolan directed it, and I really do like it when he makes movies with strong protagonists. 
mm. uh, that kind of drive the plot forward, and that is not at all what Dunkirk was about. I thought it was a very uh, interesting movie with a very interesting framing device for the different timelines. But the other problem is, and I haven't mentioned this, which is why I also didn't think I was necessarily the best person to talk 1917 with you guys, <laughs> is that I'm usually not a huge fan of war movies. And there is a... I think, that makes you, I, think, I think that makes you a good person to talk about it with. So. Well, well, I did like 1917, but let me just tell you very quickly why. I have a very fundamental disconnect with the idea that, on one hand, you're making movies about colossal human suffering, and a lot of times it's done with the best of intentions. But at the same time, you still have a Hollywood studio making a movie with the expectation to make money off of this. And that's why I always think it's a little strange to watch war movies and get any sort of sense of entertainment out of them. Or for people um, to like totally stand them and be massive fanboys of them at the same time, yeah. you know. Yeah, but 1917, um, at this point, um, there are no surviving veterans of that particular war. And it's gotten to a point now where it's a piece of history that is going to be carried on via books and movies and other forms of uh, ways of telling stories like this. Uh, but 1917 specifically, I thought, was just more compelling because it had a stronger sense of immediacy. Dunkirk, like I said, it was a very interesting concept, uh, but I never felt as close to those particular guys on the beach as I did uh, to those young men uh, walking across a devastated France uh, to carry out a mission that, again, really didn't seem all that large scale. When you look at, I mean, 1,600 men, that's a pretty sizable number. But in the big context of how many people died in World War One, it's the kind of goal that isn't going to turn the war around. It's just a typical day for these two guys, maybe a little bit more ambitious to actually get it done. Yeah. So that's why 1917, I think, overall worked a little better for me. Yeah, and I guess I'll, what I'll say, because I want to ask you guys about these performances, and not, and sometimes I'll end by talking about performances, and that's not where I'm trying to end. It's just where I want to take it now. Is I'm I'm pretty I think I'm pretty well in agreement with you on Dunkirk, Fred, and that I think that Best Editing Oscar is very well deserved. I'm not remembering all the other nominees off the top of my head, but like I I just I I, I that wasn't my issue with Dunkirk. I really respected how it came together. I think I also just am more of a fan of character based films and all the guys in Dunkirk were just like interchangeable British white dudes besides Harry Styles. And that's just because he's Harry Styles, not really because that was much of a character or anything by nature of just having a lot more characters. I guess that's just a challenge that they're going to have to face. And here they obviously didn't really try and introduce that many key characters besides having these more recognizable actors pop up around our two young leads. But I just really cared about these two dudes and I, I bought into their journey. And I think that's a, a, a big testament to the performances, especially George McKay, because so much of this movie rests on his shoulders. Uh, Elijah, what did what did you think about this? And I mean, I think they made a very. I, I I heard somewhere that he made a very intentional choice that he wanted to cast a relative a relative unknown. And I mean, at least in the lead, because I mean, you're not cast if you're you're not casting a Game of Thrones actor if you want that part to actually be unknown. Uh, but I mean, George McKay, I mean George McKay, he was in Captain Fantastic, which I saw, but I had forgotten that I had seen him in it till after I saw 1917. So not many people. Really really knew him all that well. What did you think about how he carried this movie? Um, well, so first of all, quickly, I just want to touch on that uh, Baby Driver was nominated for Best Film Editing in 2017, oh, so that yeah. got absolutely robbed. Oh, true. By Dun <laughs> <laughs> fair, very fair, very fair. Completely highway robbed by Dunkirk. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, God, George Mackay. Like, oh, Mackay, Mackay, sorry if I messed it up. Oh, no, that's, that's, he's just, that, that's very Scottish last name oh, pronunciation. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah, George Mackay was absolutely, I mean, just just stunning. Just, I mean, you're right. This is a movie that entirely is going to rest on 
I, I don't know if we've gotten to the spoiler section yet here. We're not spoiling. I, uh, I guess. I guess we could. We well, actually could kind of spoil this movie. Yeah, we could. We could say. We could say this is spoiler spoiler section. We've already talked big picture enough, and everyone agrees. We all agree. People should see it. So if you want to talk about anything that's kind of spoilerly, go on ahead. We'll we'll cut we'll cut ourselves off there. Right. So I will say I was pretty completely taken by surprise when uh, D. Charles Chapman dies. Yeah. Uh, like a third of the way into the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I was not expecting that. Uh, even having, and you know, now I think about it, I go back and look at the trailer. I'm like, you know, damn, he really isn't in a lot of the trailer. It really is George <laughs> Mackay. So I wonder what happened. But, you know, you don't think about that when you see the trailer the first one or two times. And uh, yeah, so I, I was very surprised by that. And I will quickly say that Dean Charles Chapman did a really great job with the material and his death scene, I think, is one of the most affecting I've ever seen in a war film. And I think, you know, that that's a combination of the fact that it's a one take and you're not given the ability to look away from it. You're not given the option to, you know, be distracted. You have to sit there and experience it. Uh, but, you know, that that scene could be a lot worse if it was not a great actor. Um, and so I think he did a really good job uh, with his his climax scene, if you will. But I mean, George Mackay is, you really feel like they actually put the guy through the ringer. Like, I mean, by the time that he is sitting at the Devon's camp, listening to the kids singing Wayfaring Stranger, Mm -hmm. and you just get this, you get the shot of him with this absolute, the 1000 yard stare on his face that he's just completely, there's nothing left. Uh, There's no energy left. I, you know, you believe it, you buy it, you completely buy it. And, uh, I thought that was just a really, really impressive performance um, to keep that up for the whole film. And I will say as well that, you know, I think I understand where Fred's coming from with not liking war movies. Uh, And I I would be pretty inclined to agree, to be honest. I think the American war film tradition, just like the American Western film tradition, is largely born of a lot of mythology and a lot of jingoism and self-aggrandizing by America. And uh, I think that's, you know, that that's why a lot of war films feel hollow and kind of, you know, like they're treading the same ground. And for me, with Dunkirk, that's how I felt about Dunkirk, even with all of its it's it's different styling and, and the different layers and the at the end of the day it really was just a lot of rah rah Britain you know like a lot of a, a lot of British mythologizing and something that I felt 1917 did really well was it tread that line between being a war film and an anti-war film I think the film takes a really it takes a very hard and honest look at the toll of war it's not completely anti-war though there is some ambiguity i mean there is still a hero but you know he's he's not somebody who we immediately like Schofield is not as immediately likable as dean charles chapman he's not as lovable and as silly he's not as you know committed to the cause he Dreams sells his taking him on the mission yeah Right. He's the, the only, really the only reason he's there is because he's the nearest. He's <laughs> sitting sitting nearby. Like that's the only reason he's really there. And so I think uh, the movie does a really good job, kind of balancing that notion of, you know, ca- like with war films, it's usually cowardice, bad. Like the way that Killian Murphy is, you know, per, uh, portrayed in Dunkirk. Uh, this movie does a much more nuanced job of showing that that's. N- not always such a, a, you know, black and white divide that, you know, people can learn uh, to overcome 
their fears about things, and that people can have very valid reasons for not wanting to be involved in a war. So I think that, and to bring this back, I think that, you know, George Mackay does so much with so little because it's not a very wordy screenplay. And a lot of it is just how much the audience can empathize with this guy through his emotions and through what he's going through. And I think he portrays that phenomenally. I think he wears all of that emotion and all of that uncertainty on his on his sleeve. And uh, it's very powerful. So that phenomenon that I think Elijah was describing about a lot of the quintessential American war movies being very much about heroism and masculinity and coming back victorious. I think this different take that 1917 goes for very much lends itself to a movie about World War One specifically, because that is a conflict that, if you look at it historically, was just really a colossal waste of human lives. I mean, every war is, in a way, but when you look at World War II, uh, the people that came home that survived, they could always tell themselves and take pride in the fact that there were some very evil people that needed to be defeated. And I think that is a narrative that World War II can very much support. World War I, on the other hand, was just a huge diplomatic fuck-up <laughs> where a bunch of monarchs were too, had too much hubris to give up power to their citizens and preferred to send millions of people into gunfire, nerve gas, and just really vicious warfare for four years in order to maintain their power. So when you look at just two guys in the trenches being assigned a mission, the large-scale question that presents itself is, what is it all for? Why are we even doing this? I mean, ultimately, the whole thing got triggered by a, a throne successor being assassinated. And obviously, we're three years removed at that point. So why do these guys keep fighting? Well, Blake... He has a brother who could possibly die, and that is obviously a very strong motivator for him to uh, complete this mission successfully. And eventually, uh, Schofield is also personally motivated because his friend died in his arms, and Elijah was already saying that it is a very affecting death scene because it's really just a terrified kid who at that point realizes that he's never going to see his family again. And that really, I think, hammers home the point that World War I uh, is a conflict that people don't know as much about as World War II usually, because the problem is, of course, that there was another war afterwards. It wasn't the ultimate defeat of evil as World War I is portrayed. So I really like that they took the time to develop these guys and that I had such a strong emotional attachment to them by the end. Yeah, and I like what you said about their uh, just them, the, all these monarchs sending them, sending them into this messed up stuff, whether it be tear gas or just these, just the nature of some of these trenches they're stuck in, and all that, and how that can lead to some pretty uncomfortable situations. Because I think part of what makes this like such a visceral movie experience, without all the battles that I was expecting going in, is that you know you're like 15 minutes into this movie, and then before one character puts his whole entire arm in someone else's guts, basically. And then there are other moments where they're not as on the nose as that, but you're just like like something in like the corner of the frame, you'll see like a, a rotting corpse or some other kind of rat somewhere or something like that that's like, wow, like this is just like really screwed up that like this is what these guys, this is their every day. I mean, we're only with them for two hours of this and you've got to keep reminding yourself of that, that like, wow, this feels like an eternity to us and this is just like a small sliver of the lives of anyone that's not going to die tomorrow in this version of the world we're in. 
and I'm like, wow, like they've done such a good job of just conveying like how horrific these circumstances are without having to actually see guys get killed that many on that many different occasions in this movie. Yeah, I w- I want to say I don't honestly I got to be honest I don't really know who to thank for this whether I I have to imagine it's Sam Mendes but to some degree also the production designer uh, the placement of corpses in this movie. It's really, I mean, like, I know that's a weird thing to say, but uh, two specific examples that immediately come to mind are during Blake's death, the camera, you know, has that, we have that wide shot kind of where we, it's just Schofield holding Blake, and then the camera kind of subtly moves, and you just see the German, the dead German pilot in the background, Hmm. (laughs) and it's like, you're very conspicuously reminded that that guy also just died, and he didn't have anybody, like, (laughs) you know, holding him, telling it was going to be okay. Um, He also kind of had it coming when he killed his saviors. I mean, come on, dude. Right, right. (laughs) You know, I think that, I think that there's a, it's very intentional to show, you know, that uh, war, you know, it's, it's unforgivable. It's unforgiving because everybody thinks they're doing the right thing, um, and everybody dies thinking they're doing the right thing. So uh, you know, every, and it's kind of one of those notions of everybody sort of equal in death. And uh, you know, then you then you compare that to another scene where uh, towards the end, when Schofield uh, is escaping from uh, Kust from the town um, that he kind of crosses through. And he jumps into the river and there's this really harrowing, you know, sequence of him, you know, crashing down the river. And he reaches this natural ford at the bottom of the river and there's just all these corpses piled up there. And it didn't actually hit me at first what was being implied, but you watch it and you realize that they're civilians. They're not dressed like military. You know, they're they're not in military uniforms. They're just normal people. And the implication is that there's all these people that the Axis forces have executed basically and dumped into the river and have just all ended up here at this at this end of the river um and it's just it's it's really subtle i mean because we've you know throughout the whole runtime we've come to be so accustomed to you know kind of this aesthetic of war um that when we see it it it, it, for me it didn't immediately register what was happening and then you know he's kind of you know showfield's gasping and, and you know almost drowning and has to kind of climb over these dead civilian bodies to get to shore. Um, and I thought that was another very just impactful moment of, of I, I, perhaps ironically enough, corpses being used very well. Um, <laughs> so yeah. I do have a slightly lighter note to add to that, actually, because, <laughs> yes. I, because I was reading about it and I thought it was pretty funny. Apparently, they used a pretty large area in France to do the filming, and they scattered prosthetic bodies all over the place. So they had to put up warning signs, apparently, for people who were just kind of walking by to make sure that if they came across any of those bodies, not to panic, that that, there's filming going on here, guys. Like, that body is meant to be there. Yeah. I guess you mentioned the you mentioned the, the trip down the river, Elijah. I wanted to ask you guys about some of the stuff in this latter half of this movie that I've heard at least a few nitpicks and criticisms of. Uh, some people calling that Deus Ex waterfall and just how it kind of it seems like it gets him to where he needs to be, where it was supposed to take him eight hours to go pretty fast. He just walk, wakes up and he's basically uh, right where he needs to be. Did it get a little too loosey goosey with the real time of it all, with how how long that trip was supposed to take, where it was supposed to take eight hours and we're kind of with him the whole time, and it doesn't really 
necessarily add up or there's the did he actually get shot in the head i kind of took took it as those bullets are kind of weak it's world war one and he's wearing a helmet and they hit him in the helmet but i've heard some kind of criticisms that like maybe it didn't feel quite as grounded in that second half did anything like that even bother you or was that not even really a consideration uh, yeah, it didn't, it didn't really bother me. I understand that it's supposed to be one take, but I don't think there's any point in the movie in which it's directly implied that what we are seeing is happening in real time. It's not like, you know, there's, there's a movie I think with like Al Pacino from a few years back called like 88 minutes and it's like a crime thriller and it's supposed to literally take place over the course of 88 minutes. I don't think anybody, hopefully nobody really honestly thought that this movie was supposed to, even if it was supposed to look like one take, if anybody was supposed to, thought it was actually supposed to be one whole, you know, like, like this is the whole journey. Yeah. There's obviously time distortion is going to occur and there's, you know, subtle and unsubtle ways that they do that. There's obviously there's time and distortion that occurs when he gets on the truck full of, when Schofield gets on the truck full of uh, other British soldiers. And it's a really great scene. And, and we are distracted by the characters and their personalities and this little, you know, small vignette that I don't think most people are sitting there thinking, I really wonder how much time is passing. Are we literally watching them, you know, drive in the back of this truck or, or is it implied that they're driving for a little bit longer? Yeah, he could have walked um, out probably otherwise. Right, right. Right. And so, you know, so stuff like that. And then obviously the not so subtle ways like him getting shot and shot in the shot in the head. And uh, obviously he's knocked out and the camera guy did not sit there for four hours and just <laughs> film right, right, right. George Mackay. There's there's the time distortion that's implied to have occurred that even if it is one take time has passed. So I, I wasn't particularly bothered by that. I didn't feel like I, I definitely appreciate and I, and I agree with Fred, what Fred said earlier that, you know, this is, it does a great job of showing how really how little space they were fighting over. It, it is not a very large distance, but I think the movie balances it pretty well to show that it's not a huge, it's not a huge distance, but it's enough distance that, you know, this journey is not easy. You know, his trip down the river, is it revenant level of, you know, <laughs> of, you know, just absolute breathtaking, you know, about to die moments on a river? I, I don't know, but uh, I didn't I wasn't particularly bothered by it, especially when they've been referring to the place that he needs to go as the like the ford at the end of the river oh, for true. the entire runtime of the film. So when he ends up in a river, I wasn't particularly shocked or, you know, felt like that was stupid. So. Yeah. Actually, the one scene that kind of bothered me, and this didn't really have anything to do with the time distortion, was the one that came right after. And I hate to say it because it is a very beautiful scene uh, when he approaches the camp of the soldiers and they're all listening to the performance of Wayfaring Stranger. I did find it a little odd that not a single one of them turned around and checked out whether this might be a German dude coming <laughs> up to them. Um, I mean, he could have really been anyone. And I would hate to think that none of them were vigilant enough to at least give him a quick glance. I mean, I get that everybody was transfixed and it's a very gorgeously performed song and uh, I didn't want to let that take me out of the scene, but that's probably not something that would have been advisable uh, in an actual like moment of war. I did have that thought too. Uh, what did you guys think uh, before I, 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 we'll talk about the, the end and then I'll 
go back and ask you a few other uh, odds and ends types of questions. But last thing before we get to the end, uh, what did you think of the interlude where he ends up in this small uh, small living space with this French woman that is taking care of a baby? Because that's actually like kind of a bit of a trope that like we've seen in war movies before. I I actually really liked it when it was done in David Ayer's Fury. I don't know why. I just that 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 sequence in that movie really works for me. It's kind it's kind of a thing in Overlord, uh, what which Elijah and I talked about last year. Though that was that was that's also World War Two as opposed to World War One, where you just find this French woman that has a kid in a house and then you're hanging out with her. And I from what I understand, that's th- these aren't the only three movies that's ever happened. And uh, did that scene? I mean, I in the moment I'm kind of like, yeah, this scene is kind of a nice breather for me as a viewer if at least for this movie standards i mean they were really never getting a true breath but like i was like oh at least i get this here but i can also acknowledge that like this does feel kind of familiar what i liked about the particular scene actually was the reveal that it's not her baby um because normally it would have been a young mother right father went away probably died in the war at some point already but what i took away from that is that that baby probably doesn't have anybody left anymore and that young woman is just taking care of it and it kind of hammers home the point um of what Elijah was saying is later paid off in the river scene that this war affected everyone, civilians as well. So this was just one of many babies that ultimately probably ended up being taken care of by somebody else if they were that lucky and didn't just, to put it quite horribly, die in the streets because there was nobody left to take care of them anymore. So that scene kind of affected me in that sense because it was done a little differently than it usually is in these kinds of movies. Yeah. I felt like it was also the kind of the perfect place for that scene because at that point, we don't, we don't know until the absolute final shot pretty much of the movie what Schofield's motivations are. Uh, you know, it's kind of implied that he's got a family, you know, back home, but we don't really know until he gets to that final scene that he has a wife and, and I think it's two kids, yeah, right? Yeah, for all I knew, he could have just been like going back to his mom and dad and siblings as opposed to a right. wife and kids, yeah. We don't know until the end that he's going back to to his wife and kids. And I felt like that scene with the baby helped to, you know, implicitly and subtly reestablish his motivations. Because by the time he gets there, I would say that he's pretty much he's running on fumes. Like there's I would say that the way that he that that, you know, that that Schofield is responding to it is he's going because he he has an order, not because, and because he made a promise to his friend, not because he really, really feels like he needs to go. And I think him seeing that baby, we—he's a, a different guy after that scene. He has this, you know, he's—he's he's sort of—he's a man possessed, you know. He has the the wherewithal to escape from a pack of, you know, a horde of soldiers, you know, jump down a river, go down a river, find these other soldiers, and then run across a battlefield to relay an order. Uh, and let, let's be honest, that's not the kind of, uh, you know, level of motivation we've seen from him earlier in the movie. So I think when you combine that scene with what we learn at the ending, we, re- we kind of, we can think back and recognize, oh, like he saw that kid and it reminded him what he's doing there, yeah. you know? That yeah. he's there because he needs to get back to his kids. The other so. thing I, the other thing I liked about it was it again. It did. It, like I mentioned, it did kind of give you a breather. But on top of that, you need the breather before everything that happens right after it. 
because that's like where the movie's like, all right, Roger Deakins, you can like really show your shit now and flex. When I mean, you got you got to deal with those. He's beating up those guys in the dark, but then he's just like running through this entire place on fire, straight into the water. And I guess it is a little bit of a breather before when he's with the Devons and they're doing the singing and stuff. But then it's like straight into the battle. I mean, it feels like the movie just like takes off again. If that was like its layover, if it's a plane, that's like its takeoff, and it doesn't really let you go the rest of the time. So I was like, all right, I don't know if I could have handled like going straight through to him escaping from the ruins of that city. And it's also not Roger Deakins who goes full speed at that point. So does Thomas Newman. Um, oh, considering, sure. Oh, yeah. Like, like, considering that a lot of the earlier scenes were fairly quiet and a lot of talking, I like that his score was more subdued. But man, especially in that scene, it was just one of those like, really intense moments that I go to the movies for and uh, where, you know, if this had been any other year, this would be a shoe in for the winner. But uh I don't know. It looks like Joker might actually end up taking that, which I thought was a very good score. And she also scored Chernobyl. So I'd, I'd be very happy for mm. her to get that award. But this really should be a shoe in any other year. Yeah. Um, what about the uh, what, 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 what about that final battle scene? Because I, I kind of talked about how uh, impressed I was that there actually weren't that many battle scenes. But then it, it is a different kind of battle than I feel like we've ever really. I mean, I guess that is how battles were probably done in World War One. But I was just kind of like I just thought it was kind of funny. It's like you do have these guys that are just off in a safe space. It's like, all right, next group going in and they're just there. And you're relatively almost somewhat kind of safe in those trenches until the bombs start coming down. But I, I don't know. It, it was a different way of looking at war. But then you I mean. It's kind of funny that, like, again, that shot was in the trailer of uh, George McKay just kind of running from one end of the bunker to the next. But I think it is kind of just cool, though, just to say about that again, that, you know, the most iconic shot from a war movie is just, like, not a guy actually, like, committing an act of violence, which I just think is, like, really kind of interesting. And I appreciated it. And, I mean, I think at this point everyone's kind of seen the behind-the-scenes footage they're showing of that of that shot in particular. And doing their part to get Roger Deakins that second Oscar. I'm all for it. But uh, I don't, so I don't know if there's a lot to add that hasn't already been said about it, but was there anything that kind of struck you as like, Oh wow, this is really unique. I'm, this is something I don't usually see. I am glad they went there. This is awesome. Was there any one thing that really kind of stood out to you about that final sequence aside from Benedict Cumberbatch popping up, Elijah? Yeah, I will. I will say that, you know, when you're doing something like a lot of one takes and a lot of long takes and you, and you have scenes that are very long, you have to, as a filmmaker, you have to be comfortable with a little bit of, uh, you know, with some happy accidents. And I think that final scene is a great example of that. I know that people have, some people have watched behind the scenes for it, but one of my favorite things about that scene and, the, and that ended up in the movie is that on the particular take that they use that ended up in the movie George Mackay runs full speed into two people that he's not supposed to run. <laughs> yeah, into. I, I didn't like, know that till like right before I was coming on here. I was listening to another podcast. Yeah. I did not realize that was not in the script. Yeah, um, that and that's. I mean, really, it's not something you can script. There, you know, you have. It's just that's something that's just going to happen if it's going to happen. And uh, I thought it. I thought it just worked really well because it. It helped to reinforce that notion that like he is. A man possessed like he needs to deliver this message no matter what and you know, there's only so many ways you can drive that home visually and the accident of him like smashing into two people and then immediately getting up and, and kept going uh i think that's a testament to a, a talented director letting something like that happen and an, a really talented actor who has the wherewithal to not be like confused when something like that happens and to just know to immediately get back up and keep going 
Yeah, one of the extras didn't get up, actually. And I'm kind of wondering, like, what do you do <laughs> at that point as an extra? Do you just kind of think to yourself, eh, let's just leave it? Or do you get back up and keep running? So I, I noticed that as well. And I thought it, I, guess I definitely that, thought it was scripted because it makes sense, you know, that yes, he, uh, not everyone's gonna get pu- not everyone's gonna pop back up when they get knocked out, you know. Uh, <laughs> and I, and I, we kind of talked about some of the impossibilities and things like that. There's also like the the really bad shot when he's on the bridge. I did that didn't bother me, but one thing I was like, the only thing I, that really stretched credulity for me even more so than his trip down the river was like, how many concussions can one guy get in one day? And still, like, be running like that. If we just presume it was just a concussion with the gunshot to the helmet, and he also, you know, uh, had had the had the bomb when he was in the bunker, uh, or had the bomb when he was in like the the living quarters of the bunker. That so that's like two big concussions right there. And I'm pretty sure I'm forgetting like a third. You know, you know when he's just having to beat guys up and stuff. So he's like probably already had four concussions in like eight hours at the point where the climactic scene happens i'm like that was the one that was like my one nitpick is this really all that realistic thing because i mean at some point your brain's just gonna like go into a coma or something i don't know i'm not a doctor come on josh you watch the nfl you know how it goes oh, fa- fa- that's a fair point he, he, um you know showfield wasn't carson wentz he wasn't smart enough to take himself out of the game uh last question i want to ask for you guys i, I kind of mentioned the benedict cumberbatch thing um and i, I just kind of want to ask you generally about all these much more well-known british actors that just kind of pop up did you have any thoughts on any of them and would you have rather them just been unknowns because like that's a we've kind of been building towards them finding blake's brother the whole time and then not only is it someone that as recognizable as Richard Madden it's it's now Rob Stark's now related to Tom and Baratheon and <laughs> but in like it, it, it's, it's like at that point just in the movie like to have someone that recognizable and also that's that connected to the other character that he's related to that, that could be distracting but I also think like Richard Madden really kind of acted his ass off in that moment and I was like okay I don't care like I, I I'm almost right there with him uh did you guys did you have any thoughts on these all these cameos Fred I think these people were mainly chosen to do what they're good at uh, I mean, Benedict Cumberbatch, he's played this kind of part before. Um, he was actually World War I, uh, like, general or commander in, I think, World, what was the movie, War Horse? Oh, yeah, 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 that's World War One. correct so he, call. Yeah, so he was in that as well. So when he's not playing Stern Generals, he plays uh, kind of um, socially awkward uh, scientists. So, th- I mean, I thought he was, like, good in, like, that small part. I thought uh, Mark Strong's appearance... Uh, was a nice little touch. Um, I thought uh, Andrew Scott was hilarious. He was I mean, awesome. Guy is, yeah, I mean that guy. That guy's just ubiquitous these days. I just finished the second season of Fleabag, and man, that guy. Had a black. He should be episode. in a whole lot. Mm-hmm. He should be in a whole lot more things. Uh, and he's also going to be Tom Ripley apparently in a TV show based on the talented Mr. Ripley next year. Ooh, so, huh? wow. guy, that guy has a busy schedule. And, you know, he makes a lot out of just a very brief appearance. So yeah, he kills it. Uh, I mean, con- I mean, considering how many big name actors Dunkirk had and much more prominent roles. I thought it was kind of a nice touch that Mendes was able to get people to appear in this for like yeah, five uh, minutes. Jeez. Yeah, Elijah, did the extended cast also work for you? Yeah, I've, I've, I was talking to somebody the other day and they were kind of like making a joke about how all of the cameo members, all the cameo cast members are kind of like introduced the same way where it's like back turn to the camera, <laughs> approach from behind, then they like turn around dramatically <laughs> and it's like, it's like all, it's the way that they're all introduced. And yeah, I mean, maybe, but I, I have to be honest, I really don't mind cameos. I know that for some people it takes you, it takes them out of a film, you know, they're like, oh, I know that person, but. I think if you're at that point, you're kind of already out of the film anyways, if you're thinking like that. And to me, 
I always err more on the side of that sometimes it's better to have people that you recognize because that helps lend importance to the scene. And I, maybe that sounds bad, at, you know, you get, like people who you don't recognize are not as important, but it, it's it's true. It's just the way the human brain functions. And right. um, I think each of those cameos kind of represents a different aspect of soldiering. Um, that was for me, that was the way I interpreted it. Um, and so, you know, having somebody... Uh, you know, efficient and, 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 you know, somebody recognizable in each of those roles, I felt uh, was a good decision. I felt, you know, Colin Firth was the general. He's, he's the, you know, the single-minded logic. It's all about, you know, we're trying to win this war with the least number of, you know, allied deaths possible. Like that's, that's at the end of the day, that's, that, that's, his, and that's his character. And he represents that aspect of being a soldier. He is the general for that reason. Andrew Scott, you know, represents that kind of the hopelessness of war that he's, you know, he's kind of gotten away from that. And, and you know, from away from the logic and away from the sense that he's all about the minutiae and just, you know, his little corner of the of the trench. He's never cracked it, so. <laughs> right. And, you know, and Mark Strong is the he's strong. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, he's that reassuring, you know, he's in a way he's like a small momentary father figure for Schofield in the time when he really, really, really needs it. You know, he's there to just kind of tell him, like, you know, you, you still got a mission to do. You know, the best thing you can do for yourself and for your friend is to finish that mission. And so uh, having I, I think you can understand where I'm going with this without me having to explain the entire. <laughs> the entire yeah, 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 each, yeah, yeah. Of the, each of these guys. They represents, serve their purpose. Yeah, they represent a different aspect of, of a soldier's mentality. And so uh, having somebody in each of those moments who really carries it, uh, and like you said, like Richard Madden, really, really carries that moment, I think that was a smart decision. Yeah, I, I, I was. I, I, like, I like the way you put all that, thinking of each of them representing a different type of soldier. I hadn't even really thought to contextualize it in that manner. Fred, any final thoughts on 1917 before we move on? Not particularly, no, but again... As uh, somebody who usually uh, has a hard time warming up to war movies, this really just was an incredible all-around experience, and I'm very happy that it's making a good amount of money. Yeah. Um, it seems like people are taking to this, and it's getting a very good audience, uh, a very good audience score as well. It's not just the critics who like it, so it's good to see that this kind of film is catching on this early in the year when we still have a few of the like bigger movies from December uh, yeah. around at the theater. Yeah, Elijah. Any final thoughts on 1917? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's the same same as what Fred said. It's uh, it. I think they they made a kind of risky play uh, with when they released the movie. Um, and personally, I mean, if we're the gambler and me, I think it's going to pay off. I think I think it's probably going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. I mean, they just they, they it was a risk to release it so, so late, late at the yeah. absolute at the absolute last minute. But somebody had the cojones to do it and to think that they were going to win Best Drama at the Globes because Before now the whole you, country had seen their movie. Yeah. Right. Now you can advertise your movie that's just now being released as Golden Globe Best Drama, <laughs> Best Picture Drama yeah. winner uh, going into a very, uh, you know, I, I would say a pretty competitive award season. I mean, that's going to be a huge, huge leg up for this movie. And, uh, that, you know, from the outside, from the post-production, from the, uh, you know, outside the actual craft of the movie, the, the marketing, uh, and the release of that movie, I think it was, uh, that was a really, really smart decision. 
All right. Again, I also really like this horror movie, and I I don't know. It's it's cool when you can combine this kind of craft with and just uh, with with great performances that really kind of keep you in the zone the whole time. So I definitely recommend it. But we got to move on to the very last Best Picture winner of the year to be discussed on the rewind. That is James Mangold's Ford versus Ferrari. I did not talk about this movie when it was released like two months ago because, I mean, fall is a busy time for movies and it just kind of it slipped through the cracks and I didn't have I didn't have if if a friend had reached out and said I want to talk about this movie, I would have done it. Whenever someone's excited enough to actually take the initiative to reach out to me about a movie, I'm not going to not talk about that movie unless it's something that I have some really strong reason not to see and that that doesn't happen. I'll see just about anything. So the fact that no one actually, the fact that I didn't do a podcast on it was kind of indicative. I think of like a, just a, I don't know what I thought was almost like a lack of really strong buzz, at least around people our age. I mean, you know, I don't really have any, this is a total dad movie for sure. I don't necessarily say that derisively cause I did like the movie, but you know, the people that the ages of the people I have on this podcast are not really in it's like target demographic. So when I it just kind of slipped by and I had, I, I, I never, I try to really never miss a week. That is, I try and do an episode every week. I, I, I like, the consistency of it i like being able to say that and i actually think it's kind of better for the listenership if i don't like just let there be that big of a lull so i I had plenty to talk about so i wasn't like i need to go do this one movie when i already had something to talk about every week and no one reached out so it just didn't happen and that being said i'm a completist when a movie gets nominated for best picture i'm going to talk about it and this one all of a sudden got nominated for best picture despite the fact that i would say there'd been less buzz about it than just about any of its other fellow best picture nominees and then even a few that didn't get any nominations like you know the farewell or uncut gems or other stuff that did maybe get a few nominations like bombshell which didn't do great i guess but like people were just talking about it because of all those female performers that some of them who did get nominated like so many things just on the cusp that didn't that were being talked about more but all of a sudden ford versus variety pops up with a few tech nominations and a best picture nomination and here we are so elijah and fred got drafted into talking about this one just as they got drafted into the trenches of world war one to talk about 1917 <laughs> so i will say i'll start i'll start with you fred because i know you did really like this movie it's just uh we're just now talking about it a couple months after you saw it so uh, thinking back to what you can about 1917 uh was it a kind of movie that you were thinking like you know this is kind of of a different time i could see it being getting a best picture nominee but you know maybe it's just going to kind of come and go what, what what were your thoughts as you kind of like moved into the rest of or- through all these award season movies was ford <laughs> versus ferrari something that you kept coming back to and you're like that's really stuck with me or had you really even thought about it till i said hey you're talking about this tonight well, there's a very obvious parallel between 1917 and Ford vs. Ferrari. It's about uh, like very dangerous, life-threatening activities. <laughs> Two men on a mission. Um, <laughs> Two men on a mission, absolutely. Um, uh, no, I, you know, I wasn't surprised whatsoever about the technical nominations. Um, I think um, I would very much like to see it uh, win the editing Oscar. I think apparently they shot the final race like on like five different days and then they had to splice that footage together and it ended up being a really great uh climactic action scene so uh, like really cool stuff that they did with this movie and i'm very happy for james mangold as well who i think is a very underrated director who's done some very good stuff with logan obviously a couple of years ago i know you, um, i know you actually like joker fred but i'm of the opinion we should just retroactively give, give retroactively give all of joker's nominations to logan that would, uh, that, you know, I, I wouldn't disagree with that. I thought that was really a fantastic movie. That was my, I, second, that was my second favorite movie of 2017. So, Yeah, and really just uh, indicative of uh, what the guy can pull off. And uh, I'm happy to see that even if uh, ultimately it's not going to translate into any win, obviously, in Ford vs. Ferrari isn't going to be the picture that James Mangold is remembered for. 
uh, that he is getting some awards recognition for it. Um, I really like the chemistry between Matt Damon and Christian Bale in it. Well, I was a little surprised that he got a Best Actor nomination at the Globes, but, you know, it was a good performance, and they do seem to like Christian Bale a lot. It was impressive to see him go from incredibly overweight Dick Cheney <laughs> to haggard uh, Ken Miles in this movie. And, yeah, you, you know, is the Best Picture nomination deserved? I don't know, but I thought it was a terrific movie, so I was very happy yeah. when that name was suddenly announced uh, well, it was that also, morning. Yeah, it was also surprising that, like, they they liked it enough to nominate for Best Picture, and, and Christian Bale had gotten a lot of nominations up to that point, but he didn't get a Best Actor nomination. Elijah, where I want to start with you on this is you are, I mean, this might not be a fair characterization, but I, I just kind of assume you're not a huge car guy. Because you live, you live in you you live in Atlanta, which is not like a New York City, but you somehow do it without a car, which is like a city that's relatively spread out, and you still kind of get through the life with that. So I don't know if you typically do really like cars, and you're just like I don't want to live with one at this point in my life. But as someone that's not, I'm guessing maybe not a big car guy, did you still really like find a lot to really grab onto in this movie and just really, really be impressed by and taken with this kind of culture that it drops you right in the middle of like these kind of men that concern themselves with cars in the 1960s um i hate to disappoint you but i am actually kind of a secret car wonk really uh yeah um i uh I, my, i'm not disappointed my... i was just trying to like i was like making a guess about your interest <laughs> no that's fine yeah i uh no and as far as you know atlanta goes it's just uh you know i try i, I know the tra- from, i know the traffic's oh, awful too so it's the traffic's Isn't awful baby dri- isn't that where Baby Driver was shot? Like one of the it biggest is. car movies in recent years? <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, and we're very proud of that here. Uh, I, I know several people went specifically hunting for uh, red, I think it's a Subaru WRX, right? For, <laughs> just because of the opening scene of that movie. Wow. Um, but no, I, uh, yeah, I'm kind of a, a, a little bit of a car wonk and, and particularly vintage and, and classic racers. And so um, to see... Uh, you know, a movie made about something that's kind of like people in who, who are, you know, car fans know about the, uh, you know, the, the Scuderia Ferrari and, you know, Ford rivalry in the 60s. But I don't I mean, it's just it's cool to see that kind of thing get some screen time because I feel like people just kind of think of car movies as sort of a thing of the past. Um, you know, at least conventional car movies. It's It's been a very, very long time since we've had a real, like, racing movie. I mean, what was like Days of Thunder? Rush. Oh, Rush, you're right. You know, yeah, Nicky Lauda and, and Rush. Yeah, like that, and that's uh, Rush. I actually really like Rush. I can't believe I forgot about that. But b- beyond that, my you, you see my point, that there's yeah, not yeah, really yeah. many movies about that. And uh, so, yeah, the the Ford GT Mark 40 and uh, and Ferrari P3 rivalry is uh, it's kind of cool to see that. So, so, so they, it did a good job, in your opinion, of, like, actually bringing that stuff to the screen? Yeah, I mean, I, I, it plays de- decently fast and loose with facts uh, at some points. But as far as capturing the essence of the rivalry, that's definitely true. There's a, there was sort of a there was a gamesmanship to it that wasn't you know I think what a lot of people would expect from a car, you know from a racing rivalry. I think a lot of people, especially in America, think of racing as NASCAR. Um, and while that's pretty pretty true to an extent in in America, um, there was a time when rally racing and grand touring racing were. Uh, much more popular, and the, the cultures surrounding those were totally different than the culture surrounding NASCAR. There was a degree of propriety and, and artistry and kind of a, a high culture to it that um, you know is is not really associated with racing today. So that was something that I felt the, the movie got really right was just kind of 
everybody was sort of quippy and sassy and, and it's not a, it wasn't you know there, there's some guys at Ford who were kind of douchey but for the most part it's it, there really is a, you know kind of a beautiful repartee between the between the two teams and I think that it, the movie nailed that properly and it also got across I think how incredibly dangerous racing still is to an extent today but also was at the time especially at Le Mans yeah. Um, yeah. 10 years prior to the events of Ford versus Ferrari, there was actually a huge accident during that race where a car flew into the crowd wow. and killed 80 people. I did not know that. Um, which led a lot of, which led to a whole bunch of countries uh, banning racing for a couple of years until much better uh, safety measures were implemented. Jeez. And a couple of the guys that um, Ken Miles races against uh, at the end of the movie uh, would die within the next couple of years on racetracks, um, like the guy from Ferrari he races against, uh, he doesn't survive, his teammate... His own teammate, um, Bruce McLaren, died, yeah, 37 yeah. years old. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and of, and of course, um, I mean, the movie confronts us with that as well, that uh, you never know when you're going to, uh, if you're going to walk away from those races, because it is an incredibly dangerous sport. So uh, I think the movie did a very good job getting across just how incredible those speeds are and... I was at a race in Monaco a couple of years ago, actually, where they shut down the entire street um, and they raced through the city and you have to wear earplugs during that race because otherwise the eardrum is just going to rupture. So just the sounds, the uh, level of noise, the unpredictability of uh, the car if somebody fucks up during a pit stop. Um, it, it's really just incredible how much of that went into the movie, um, even though it seems on the surface like just bromance between Matt Damon and Christian Bale. I think it has a lot more to say about just the sport, yeah, the sport of racing. And, yeah, Bruce, um, no. uh, Bruce McCarran actually died at 32, so it's even... even I'm sorry, yeah, yeah 32, even, there you go. Even even, even sadder. Uh, I'll say uh, one thing I did appreciate, because you guys already just mentioned all this stuff that kind of happened at Le Mans and in these types of races, but I honestly didn't even... I don't know a lot about this type of racing, and I... I, I had no idea. Like I, I, I guess I maybe had heard of it before in my head, but I didn't actually have any idea what it looked like in practice. Like a twenty-four hour race. Like I, that was even foreign to me. I'm just not. I'm just not. A, I'm not a car guy. I'm not a NASCAR guy. I'm not an IndyCar guy. I'm not an F1 guy. I just. I just don't know any of this stuff. So I, I thought they just did a good job of like even you know ex- explaining the mechanics of how a race like that works. And I. I, I, I just I just found it really interesting that like how how one even goes about like doing a race of that nature as a driver as a, as a team manager, I found all of that like really interesting. I I guess to back up for a minute though, I mean so much of this is like a you know just a a, a movie about racing to build a certain kind of car, and you have uh, Tracy Letts as Henry Ford, and he's uh, he he's a little kind of like put off by Enzo Ferrari and he kind of sends everyone on their own uh, little mission there. What did you guys think about how, like, so for so much of this movie, like, the bad guy is basically Josh Lucas. What, what did you think of just how, how that is, like, the driving force throughout the movie? And did you like that like that being actually kind of like the, the real meat of this movie is us spending a lot of time with competing car building teams? Like, did you think that they, James Mangold effectively uh, made that compelling, Elisha? So it's hard for me to speak personally on this. I know that friends of uh, Leo Beebe, uh, the, the character, that uh, the person that uh, 
Josh Lucas plays. Yeah. Um, I know that several people have said that they they felt like it was a pretty unfair portrayal of him. Really. Um, that they yeah that they felt like they, and we, the movie kind of uniformly portrayed him as a dick and and in real life he was you know much more dedicated to the company and he really only ever had the company's you know best interests in mind and that was kind of his motivation for everything. Um, and I I would without knowing that much about him as a person, I would be inclined to agree because really the, you know, the movie needed to have a villain. It needed to, you know, it needed to have a driving antagonist, but basically somebody to kind of push the plot along, you know, to, to create a sense of urgency. But the reality was in the time period that what, what Carol Shelby, you know, as a designer and, you know, Ken Miles, as, you know, somewhat as a lesser extent as a driver and a mechanic, what they were really fighting against wasn't necessarily, uh, you know, the money side of it, they were fighting against the entire culture of Ford, where, you know, Ford at the time didn't really make sports cars. They didn't make sports cars, period. Right. Uh, you know, the closest thing that they made was, you know, was the, was the Mustang, was the pony car. And, you know, Lee Iacocca is, is pretty accurately presented as being kind of an outcast in the company because of that. Uh, Americans at the time didn't, you know, sports cars were very foreign. It was a, it was a, it was an Italian and a German idea, you know, sports cars, Porsche and Ferrari were huge names in that. Um, and so what they were really fighting against was the, this kind of self-inflated American idea of like, we don't need sports cars. We don't need those little fast little toys. Like we need work cars. We need utility cars, cars that are going to get you from point A to point B with your whole family, all, all 12 of you in the car. Um, and so I, I think that the movie did the best that it could portraying that while still needing to have a regular, you know, regular antagonist, if you will. I, I, I could see why that might have been. They might have taken some liberties with him. But I that was like the one thing that like, I don't know, I get that you want, might want to have some kind of antagonist and you don't want to like cast Enzo Ferrari in any negative light. But I almost would have rather just uh, it might have been almost more tolerable to me if they just didn't have us repeatedly having a, this guy trying to throw this one guy off of a team because he was mean to him like three years ago at some kind of like car show. Like it, it just got kind of like repetitive to me. And I thought it, it would have been more if it was just like a more man against machine for that segment of the movie, except instead of man against like man with a weird ax to grind. And that was really the one part of the movie that like frustrated me. And I, I definitely liked the rest of this movie as well. But uh, Fred, did you have any other uh, thoughts about their, th- that segment of the movie where they're just trying to like actually get the technology to where it needs to be? Well, I think there's also a certain irony to the fact that this was released under the Disney banner and the whole movie was really such a big critique about uh, like major corporations. And I mean, this whole idea of uh, you can't do racing by committee is, of course, a pretty audacious claim when they uh, decided to release the Star Wars movie at the end of the year that was essentially <laughs> direct. <laughs> Fair, so good point. Of, I mean, so, so it's kind of exhibit A, of course, for how not to run a company, essentially, when there is any kind of artistic output. Kind and of whether you think of racing as art or not doesn't really matter, but obviously you need some talented and creative people uh, to create the technology, and it doesn't help when people in offices... Uh, are thinking about the bottom line. So obviously not exactly a great point for Disney to make, especially this year. Oh man, I, I'm glad you I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, I guess I mean I think this, they probably already produced most of this movie before the the acquisition went through. But but I but but I, I think I remember thinking about those parallels or seeing someone else talk about them around the time. So I'm glad you also made that point too, because it is very ironic that that kind of that that, that kind of mirrors a little bit of what was going on with the owners of this movie. As far as I I I, I do feel like we could uh, we could I, I, actually. 
I want, I want to ask you guys first about Matt Damon and then the end of the movie because we talked a little bit about Christian Bale already. But it is kind of weird that Matt Damon's just as big of a movie star, if not a bigger one, than Christian Bale. And he kind of like takes a, a literal and figurative backseat to him for a good chunk of this movie. But, I mean, I still think I really did enjoy his performances, Carol Shelby. Did you remember having any uh, impressions about what Matt Damon did here after you saw the Elijah? No, I mean, I liked, I definitely liked him as, you know, yeah. there's, a, there's a lot of media on Carol Shelby. There's a lot of, you know, interviews and recordings and, and you know, articles. And so he was a, he was a very public figure um, in the world of racing. And so, uh, you know, the, the mannerisms, the, you know, the, the slight Texas Southern drawl, the cowboy hat, the, you know, there's the, all these little things that I think Matt Damon picked up on perfectly. Part of me wishes that the screenplay had gone a little bit of a step further, uh, you know, and this is not on Matt Damon, but it's just gone a little bit further. They, they, at the end of the day, they kind of make Carol Shelby out to be a pretty wholesome, good guy all around. Like he's, you know, he's, he's, he's in it for the sport and he really has easily visionary. And that, while that, all of that was true, Shelby was also kind of a ruthless businessman. He knew exactly what he wanted. He knew, you know, how he was going to get it. And so I kind of wish the movie had leaned a little bit more into that. Um, you can't fault Matt Damon for that, though. So, you know, as far as what was there, what was on the plate, what was served, I thought Matt Damon's performance was really well done. I think, you know, with with what he had, the confines of the character and the story, uh, I think he did a really good job just getting those mannerisms and, uh, you know, portraying that character correctly. Yeah. Fred, did you have any other thoughts on the performances, whether it be Matt Damon or, you know, Tracy Letts doing his uh, that stern white guy thing that he can do so well in his sleep, but I still think he deserves a great amount of credit for it. Or uh, John Bernthal becoming a sunglasses model. I think he has a second career doing that. <laughs> did, 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 uh, did, did anyone else leave a great impression on you? Uh, I guess I do think that it is kind of odd that Matt Damon dressed as like a Texas oil baron is sort of portrayed as the little guy in <laughs> a major corporation here. Uh, a lot of conflicting messaging in this movie. Don't get me wrong. I really thought it was terrifically well done uh but that was kind of odd but i do like matt damon playing characters like that when he isn't being sort of shady or duplicitous uh like he did in interstellar like this is the kind of matt damon i enjoy uh, when he's just sort of leaning into it obviously he's imitated matthew mcconaughey on talk shows before so it's nice that he gets to do his texas twang this time around uh for an entire movie so i just had a lot of fun with him and Christian Bale interacting. I thought they played off of each other terrifically. Um, and even though it's obviously the less quote unquote damaged performance, uh, which is why Christian Bale is getting more awards recognition, it really took two actors to carry this movie. And I think they both did a phenomenal job in that sense. Yeah. Elijah, any other uh, thoughts from you on uh, what this movie pulled off from a technical standpoint? You just, you just informed us that uh, you, you thought Baby Driver was the rightful. Uh, there should have been the you know the one of the rightful winners of the best editing award in 2017. This movie is also nominated for best editing, and Fred already kind of explained why he thought that the the Le Mans race was so well edited. Uh, whether it be the actual editing itself or the sound, I actually saw The Irishman a couple nights later in a theater, uh, and I we, we I kept hearing this movie while I was watching The Irishman. It was actually kind of distracting. Uh, so that just kind of shows you the, how powerful the sound <laughs> was in this movie. Uh, but Elijah, did you have any other thoughts on just uh, how they pulled this? They pulled off that entire race from a technical standpoint. Yeah, I mean, I, I was, you mentioned the sound. I saw it, you know, in Dolby Cinema, so Dolby Atmos and Dolby Vision HDR. And, uh, you know, the sound is just, especially in the final race, it's absolutely deafening. And as, as Fred pointed out, that's 100% realistic. I mean, you're talking about 
cars that have, I don't know, three, four times the horsepower of average cars <laughs> today. The, and these were cars, you know, that were doing that, uh, what was that, 50 years ago, you know, thereabouts. So, you know, to consider that that was going on 50 years ago and just they were certainly not as uh, the cars as beautiful as they may have been were certainly not as refined as a lot of uh, sports and track cars nowadays. So, uh, you know, there was a lot going on under the hood and there wasn't a whole lot of hood to keep it under. So (laughs) that they, that they absolutely nailed that both in the the sound and I think in the editing, but also in the production design. Um, I'm, I actually don't know this because I never really went and did the research, but I am really curious where they got all of the, you know, GT40s and and Ferrari P3s, and I think there's a couple uh, Porsches in there, Porsche 90, 906s or whatever. I don't, my guess is they didn't actually use real ones. They probably custom-built kit versions because hmm. um, I have a feeling, like, the Ford GT40, there's probably only, like, 10 or 20 in existence oh, wow. <laughs> of, like, the actual ones from the 60s. That, you know, I, that would be my guess. So I, I highly doubt that they actually used real ones. So uh, I, would, I would assume that falls under the production designer's purview, that that was a really, really great job, you know, building the cars that not only looked the part, you know, they looked accurate, they looked right, but they felt right. You know, they rattled and they shook and they had, you know, kind of a flexibility that I think a lot of people don't realize cars, you know, race cars have where, you know, these things are tearing off at, you know, 100 and, you know, 70, 180 miles an hour. A lot of the parts of that car are going to start to bow and flex and do things that you probably wouldn't think cars should do. Um, and so uh, I think the movie did a really good job of capturing that aspect of it. Um, I, thought, I thought at one point at the race, like, I don't know if they, they, they show the, uh, I, forgot, I already forgot what the Josh Lucas guy name is, Leo Bebe. Bebe? Bebe? I don't know. BB. BB. They show show him on the phone at one point during the race. Like he's trying to do something to sabotage. Like they show him on the phone at the same time that the Ferrari people are on the phone. It's almost like he's trying to, it it seemed like they're almost trying to imply that like he was trying to like, you know, do something to kind of sabotage them aside from just making the suggestion that they have to tie at the end. It's like kind of a, and part of his accident with Ken miles. It almost like seemed like, I don't know if that's what they were trying to do, but I almost read it as them trying to like, imply that like he was trying to like work with ferrari to like help them in some way i don't know if that was that was weird editing or weird the way they cut it back and forth with him and the uh, showing both of them on the phone but it seemed like they were trying to imply something there that they didn't go back to and again i, I feel like that's kind of messed up to to him if that's not really if especially if they already had it wrong as far as him being as negative as it showed him to towards miles it seemed like it was almost like a step too far trying to like add a villain in there at the end where just the track itself is enough of a a worthy adversary slash conflict. I don't know. Did you guys have any other, uh, Fred, any other final thoughts on, um, on Ford versus Ferrari? Uh, well, normally at this point, I would advocate for people to go see it on the big screen, ideally in IMAX. It'll probably come. Oh, I'm glad you mentioned that. So I saw it in IMAX and it was good. I did too. And I, and I, but I forgot to say, but when we're doing 1917, that was my, seeing 1917 was my first time ever seeing anything in a Dolby theater. So I guess Elijah saw, uh, Ford, Ford versus Ferrari in Dolby, but I had never seen anything at all in Dolby until I went to, uh, until I went to this. So I, Dolby was pretty great for 1917. So I could see Dolby being great for this too, but sorry, I just want to point that out too. But, uh, Fred, finish your thought. I'm sorry. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, I mean, we are doing this, uh, two months after the release date, so yeah. uh, it'll be difficult to find in that kind of, uh, 
setting at this point. But if you do get a chance at any point, I would highly recommend seeing it how it was meant to be seen because no matter how good your sound system at home is, you're not going to be able to replicate that. Good point. Elijah, any final thoughts? Yeah, um, I would agree. That, you know, it's a, a movie to definitely see on the big screen and, uh, you know, get a good sound system for. Um, and uh, I would I would urge specifically, because I know that, you know, car, car people probably already saw this movie. Uh, you know, most, most people who are car people probably already saw this movie. Um, I would... I would specifically say non-car people should go and see it because, I mean, I think this movie really boils down racing to its most elemental components, to the thrill of it. And that's a that's a good thing, I think, for a sports movie to do uh, to help entice people who wouldn't normally be interested in it. Um, and I think this is definitely the kind of movie that is like it, it's good for non-racing people. Um, people who aren't interested in motorsports. This this is the kind of film where I think you would still take stuff away from it uh, and still enjoy it, you know, as an experience, even if you don't necessarily appreciate all of the, you know, car minutia. Yeah, I'm living I'm living proof of that because you know I just I I'm definitely not a car person at all, and I st- I still got a lot out of this movie. It's not one of my it's not really one of my ten or even probably twenty five favorite movies of the year, but like I still there's no shame in that when someone sees over a hundred movies. Like it's still easily within the the top third of the films I saw this year as someone that's not a car person. So I can definitely recommend it. So uh, Elijah, before we get out of here, anything you want to plug? Turner stuff, other stuff to watch, anything? Yeah, um I can now officially say uh our new show Snowpiercer based on the uh, graphic novel and the movie, 2032 movie, uh, Snowpiercer, the TV show, will debut on May 31st on TNT. It has stars uh, David Diggs and Jennifer Connelly, and uh, it's going to be pretty exciting. Is Bong Joon-ho uh, involved at all in that like he is at this Parasite series that just got announced with Adam McKay, or is it just kind of like we're making I a I think show? He, has a, he has a producing credit, but it's not, uh, yeah, he's not really directly involved with it it's again it's it's based there it definitely takes some visual inspiration i will say from the movies but um it's kind of a re a re-establishment from the original graphic novel uh from the french graphic novel um so that that's coming may 31st and then uh hbo max is also dropping uh soon i can say that'll be around may the official date uh will come out soon so keep an eye out for that gotcha fred anything you want to recommend or plug Nothing particularly to recommend at this point, but please do follow me on Letterboxd, as always. Uh, the name is Fred Kolb, F-R-E-D-K-O-L-B. I actually haven't reviewed a single movie from before 2019 over the past month, so I've just been busy catching up, uh, watching a whole bunch of movies from the last year to make it to the Oscars, and then a whole bunch of them didn't get nominated, so that was <laughs> unfortunate. But uh, please do follow me, and uh, I appreciate it. Uh, every yeah. follow and every like I get. Yeah, Fred gets great reviews, or get, Fred writes great reviews, and I'm sure he'll have uh, plenty more to say about some pre-2019 stuff once we kind of get through this next couple weeks and everyone sees all the things they're trying to see before the Oscars, and then we'll kind of have a little bit of a lull. I mean, there's still plenty of 2020 stuff that, God, I don't know when I'm actually going to get to it, when I'm done editing all this other stuff I'm trying to finish 2019 with, plus the Top 10 podcast, but, you know, we'll we'll make it work. So, as usual, I'm Josh Jernavoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y, on Twitter and Letterboxd, podcast Twitter, Rewind Movie Pod, podcast email, rewindmoviepod at gmail.com. Send us any feedback there. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, coming up, I guess... We'll have a podcast on I, – I, I may or may not have uh, – 
actually, this might be the last 2021 I post. I, I had said that like, uh, this, these weren't the last 2020 movies I saw. The last one I really saw in a theater probably for that, for that was a, or I, sorry, the last 2019 one I saw in a theater is Spies in Disguise. Uh, that, that, will probably be posted before this podcast. I might hold this till a little closer to the Oscars, but you know, after that, we'll still, we'll get started on 2020. We'll have bad boys for life and I think. I don't know. It depends if there's anyone that cares enough about that. And I think there was something else that coming out this weekend. I don't know. What else coming out, guys? Uh, you don't you don't mean do a little by any chance, do you? Oh no. I mean I, I, I saw the I saw those reviews. I mean at one point I was like kinda curious, but like I I I I I am too busy. I'm just too busy. I can't do it, you know. If well, it was the gentleman a, comes out next week and that's believe, it. Right? I keep forgetting it. Yeah. I mean I'm actually kind of excited about that. So got the gentleman, well maybe bad boys for life, plus finishing out all twenty nineteen. So everyone stay tuned for all that. Thanks to Fred and Elijah for joining me. As always, we'll we'll be looking forward to having them talk about some twenty twenty movies sooner rather than later. So stay tuned for that. We'll see you next time.